This is Audio QT, the podcast of QT Voices, the online magazine of the LGBTQ Studies Program at the University of Texas at Austin. This is episode two. Thank you all for listening. I'm Karma Chavez, your host of Audio QT. These are intense times, to say the least. If the COVID-19 pandemic wasn't enough, police and other vigilantes have continued to target Black people and some of their white supporters, leading to months now of urban rebellions. These rebellions, as with so much organizing in the movement for Black lives, have been largely led by young Black, queer, trans, and feminist freedom fighters whose deeply intersectional politics refuse to leave anyone behind and challenged the very foundations of the U.S. nation-state. As the election nears and white supremacy surges, violent vigilantes terrorize those who protest as recent murders by a 17-year-old white terrorist in Kenosha, Wisconsin, make so plain. Indeed, these are intense times, but they're not necessarily unusual times in the context of global history, and they're not hopeless times. As Black feminist radical thinker Mariam Kaba insists, though, hope is a discipline. What does it mean to have hope in this moment? What does it mean to even be political? To sift through some of these questions, I've invited Dr. Xavier Livermon, who for the past several years has been on the faculty in African and African diaspora studies here at UT, but sadly for us at UT, will join the feminist studies faculty at the University of California, Santa Cruz as an associate professor this fall. Dr. Livermon's research exists at the intersection of pop culture, gender, and sexuality in post-apartheid South Africa and the African diaspora. He's the author of Kwaito Bodies, Remastering Space and Subjectivity in Post-Apartheid South Africa, which came out with Duke University Press this year, and co-editor of Black Sexual Economies, Race and Sex in a Culture of Capital, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2019. Uh, Xavier, welcome to Audio QT. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here today. So it's uh, interesting times, as I was talking about uh, there in the intro, but I'm always in these moments returning to uh, what Mariam Kaba says about hope is a discipline. Does that resonate with where you are in this uh, late summer moment? Absolutely. And I actually, I love that that saying. I hadn't heard it before, but I think it does um, something more than kind of imagine hope as a kind of um, neoliberal formation. Rather, it suggests that it requires us to engage in study, engage in practice, and I think be very intentional about what exactly do we mean if we are to have hope, right? It doesn't, it's not just a kind of emotion, but rather it requires certain kinds of praxis and action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it, of course, I'm sure reminds you, as it does me, of Jose Munoz's work uh, in Cruising Utopia, where he's advocating a politics of educated hope a, as a, a very queer politics. Uh, and I wonder if you talk about how that uh, influences or uh, plays in your own work. Yeah, I mean, actually, Munoz was an important interlocutor for my, um, his earlier work was an important interlocutor for my book project. Um, when I talk a lot about um, disidentification as a particular strategy that that Black queer folks also engage in. And so, yeah, I think it is a queer thing because in many cases, um, for queer people, 
we had to kind of imagine futures and possibilities um, and hopes, right? Um, and that that often did require uh, an explicit level of organization and of care for one another, right? In order for us to be able to create any kind of semblance of a livable life or to imagine any kind of semblance of the future. This reminds me, I think, a lot about your work more broadly, which uh, one of the things that you've done so well is emphasize questions about creativity, questions about aesthetics, um, not just uh, questions about imagination, not just as play, although play is obviously very important, but as deeply political. And your work has focused on Black, queer youth and their playful, creative, imaginative practices. And so I wonder if you might say a bit more about the role of aesthetics and imagination and play uh, and how the queer youth you've worked with um, have, uh, you know, kind of helped to, to build the future there they want to see. Yeah, I mean, I think I first of all would start by saying that, you know, any kind of um, desire for change to the political system must begin with an imagination for something other than what we see now. Um, when we talk about a certain kind of um, abolition politics or a certain kind of revolutionary or radical politics, they all are embedded in a reimagination um, and a faith that, you know, the things that we're seeing now either can be transformed, they haven't always existed, they don't need to exist in perpetuity. And so I think that the work of creativity, I, it is not to just assume it as a utilitarian base for, you know, quote unquote, real politics, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I think that the work of creativity is so key to helping us imagine something that's different, right? That a lot of times, um, you know, something, a particular kind of freedom can be performed on the dance floor before it's performed, you know, in, in, in a legislature, you know, mm -hmm. space mm -hmm. or in a courtroom. Um, or it can be performed through a, a poem or, you know, a, a, a gathering. And so I think that for me, that was what was, that was really important about what that relationship is between the kinds of playful practices that, um, and creative practices that Black queer youth developed, oftentimes not necessarily with this idea that it would per se transform the politics, but that it, it became transformative because it became a space for um, helping us think about, in the case of South Africa, what, did, what would this shift in political dispensation mean really? You know, what yeah. were the limits of it? Um, how far could we push it, right? And I think that that's what we're seeing, you know, frankly, in this moment here, um, in the US with political organizing and black queer and, and black trans youth being at the forefront and making a case for um, politics needing to be done differently. Um, not just about different faces in the politics, but a, a, a complete reimagination of what freedom possibilities look like. I wanna pick up on something you said uh, early in the, the comment you just made, which is about something might be possible on a dance floor before uh, it ends up in a, a legislature in a courtroom. And I don't know, do you have any sort of concrete experiences from the, the research you've done or, 
or folks who've uh, theorized that kind of relationship to make it a bit more concrete for people who may have trouble wrapping their head around that? I, I don't know if I, I have a concrete example, but I just think about the fact that in my research, I found that, and, and let me be clear, I, you know, companion it, you know, heteronormative type marriage is not, you know, it's not a thing that I'm like, yay, you know, but, <laughs> but I, but I do want to say that, you know, there were people who were finding very informal ways, right, just in their communities to imagine what family and relationships would look like long before there was a case you know, uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, whether whether the Supreme Court in South Africa or the Supreme Court here in the in the United States, um, that argued for you know a particular kind of you know we could argue limited definition, but of you know a certain kind of alternative family structure. I think about that, right? Um, I think about the fact that um, people danced on dance floors with their with their partners long before they could sometimes even legally live with their partners, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, and so in some ways cemented uh, relationships and possibilities. Um, people um, created alternative family structures that oftentimes came out of, you know, uh, queer clubs and um, before there was ever, you know, I don't know, the possibility of certain kinds of, uh, you know, adoption or whatever that, that queer people could do. And of course, those alternative formations are still happening, mm -hmm. right? So um, that are oftentimes outside and push the boundaries of um, certain kinds of legal forms of recognition. And I imagine that, you know, we'll have different ways of thinking about family and community and interaction with one another, um, that we continue to push those definitions. So mm -hmm. I, I hope that helps to kind of maybe give it a slightly more concrete um, um, idea. Yeah, no, I think it does. I, I think, um, you know, for people who maybe aren't involved in these communities, sometimes it, it, it is difficult to imagine that what just seems um, maybe arbitrary in a way or playful or just leisure um, to, to really see its concrete connections to the realm of the political. And so I, I do think it, it, it's helpful to, to concretize that a bit. And also, I think relatedly, I'm interested to hear you say a bit more about transformation and where transformation lies and what it looks like. And so um, pushing on definitions, changing definitions, maybe doing engaging in practices in a creative space you can't engage in, in a, a legal or, or traditionally political space, how have, how has your view of what transformation is shifted uh, over the duration of your time working with young people sort of being in these spaces? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've learned so much, you know, um, because I think that, I mean, I think one of the simple things that I've learned is that, um, is that I've had to completely reimagine what what security means, right? And mm. and where it comes from. Um, and I think that like many people, you know, um, who've been taught by a particular kind of uh, fascistic pro-police, right? Um, yeah. Pro-punitive um, kind of society here in the United States, um, you imagine security, you know, in the form of 
you know, police or laws, right? Formal laws or formal policing or the the corollaries of those things, whether that be security guards or, you know, the, the child welfare system or whatever, right? Um, and I think that being in those communities and seeing how for for a lot of people, the dance club was the space of, of hyper security for them, it was a space where they were cared for. It was a space where um, they were being fed, literally. Um, it was a space that allowed them to um, potentially negotiate to um, have a place to stay or a place to sleep or a job, right? Um, you know, that it was doing this function of, of um, providing the security that in many ways the state and the society was not able to provide for 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 black queer folks right and it just made me be, have to reimagine completely what that meant and i think that that kind of framework of course becomes the basis for certain kinds of claims about um abolition right and the fact that you know the the interference of the police state, you know, into communities actually brings more violence and not more security. So mm-hmm. I think that those transformative visions begin sometimes, once again, in spaces of creativity, in spaces of leisure, um, you know, before they can kind of get expressed in kind of certain kinds of political demands. And of course, I see these things as symbiotic, but mm-hmm. but my. Um, so I won't say it's solely in the creative and le- in leisure world, right? But sure. that, but that there's a, but there's a space for a, a rehearsal or an imagination, and um, in that way, I build off of a lot of the work that was done on ballroom, you know, in the sort of early to mid aughts, mm-hmm. um, around the fact that that was a space for people to kind of rehearse and imagine. Um, certain forms of gender performativity um, and safe that they would need to be able to navigate the world, right, outside the ballroom. And we say just a bit, because there might be folks, younger listeners, who don't know what ballroom culture is. Could you just explain that for a minute? Yes, just really quickly. Um, it's uh, probably most popularized by the uh, television show Pose at this point, um, which I actually think is a fairly you know, decent rendering by Hollywood standards, right, of a, of a community of color, um, and, a, and in this case, a sort of Black, queer, and trans community. Um, but basically, it's a scene that grew up in, in a lot of urban areas where Black and brown youth um, would use as a, ultimately a space to kind of create alternative families, but also a space, in my opinion, to create um, alternative forms of imagining uh, self-worth in, in mm-hmm. self-fashioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of that included um, a kind of breaking down and reimagination of gender categories um, and then the performing of those uh, gender categories, uh, you know, in, in a kind of competitive realm. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. I just think it's always useful for uh, us to clarify so we're not in-group and out-grouping others. No, 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 no. Totally understood. Yeah. So I want to I want to pick up on this notion of security because I think there's there's a lot going on in this concept and what you just said for queer folks more broadly. And so I don't want to reinscribe of course a, a sort of historical arc 
for queer politics that necessarily returns us to Stonewall and all that that entails. But it is interesting for a moment to think about the club or the bar space for queer folks writ large and how that's both always been a side of security. I even think of being like a young dyke in rural Nebraska in the 1990s going to the queer bar two hours away because that was the one space you could be yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So there's these long legacies and also always a tension with law enforcement, specifically before we were really there, but even now, and and vigilante violence, thinking Mm -hmm. about Pulse. Um, And so I think there is uh, something really to be learned from how queer world making, queer space making, um, that offers a critique, right, of uh, state violence in particular. Does that resonate with you at all, or am I just kind of talking? Oh, no. No, absolutely. I actually think that that, that is the case. And I think that, you know, it, I don't think it's a surprise that um, queer space making, whether in the form of the club or, or other kinds of spaces, have been the site of a lot of vigilante violence over the years, right? Um, I also don't think that it's a surprise that um, these spaces, particularly, I think, in the kind of pre, you know, I, I don't know what, what what the time period, I don't, you know, that I that I would cut <laughs> it off at, but it's but certainly in a kind of, you know, an era where um, being queer was criminalized in various different ways, right? Um, that the that the club space or the nightclub space or leisure spaces that were being created by queer people um, were then all, always kind of the site where queer people was, were being oftentimes subjected to the most sort of day-to-day state mm-hmm. violence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that those are, surpri- are, are surprises. I think that we can even make corollaries um, beyond the queer community as far as the way that minoritized communities in general um, in the United States and their leisure spaces are sort of hyper-surveilled, hyper-policed, um, and, and oftentimes the site of, of intense violence from the state. Yeah, which of course we can think too about uh, all of the phone calls uh, made on Black folks who are doing ordinary things in public Precisely. space. Particularly around leisure, right? Because mm-hmm. there's this idea that I think leisure is for the white and wealthy, um, and so for people of color, you know, well, the, let's say the white, the wealthy, and the sort of, you know, cis heteronormative, right? And so when other people engage in leisure, and I think particularly um, when folks who are kind of, I think, sutured to the idea that their purpose in this country is to be labor, right? Um, yeah. Are, are then kind of engaged in in leisure practices, it it does something, I think, that invites a certain kind of violence. I think you're right. And I think um, that is this interesting tension that I think your your work points us toward that is important for us to consider. And, and so I want to kind of dig into maybe some of these questions a little bit more in relation to the way the movement, Movement for Black Lives, there's various iterations uh, of the way what's happening right now is described. But one thing is fairly consistent, which is this, uh, that queer and trans folks are at the front of these movements. Feminists are at the front of these movements. They are the thinkers who are animating what's going on, uh, drawing on 
all of these sorts of experiences that we're, we're talking about. And what, what does this mean for black liberation? What does this mean for what we've known of black social movements in the U S but across the, you know, African diaspora? Yeah. I mean, I would say two things. I think one is that, you know, doing, and, and I'm nobody's historian, so I, I do want to be, <laughs> you know, I do want to be clear um, that, you know, I kind of approach this outside, um, from outside the field in that sense. But um, one of the things that we know about Black social movements, at least, you know, contem- you know, kind of what we might call the sort of modern Black freedom movement, um, um, is that so many queer people had, and and folks that I don't know if they would have called themselves feminists, but certainly I think that they would have imagined things that we might call a proto-black feminism, right? Um, mm-hmm. All were involved in these movements in really substantive ways, um, and yet there was always this sense that um, their queerness or the fact that they um, and in their queerness slash transness slash feminist politics, right, were always somewhat of a a downplayed element, right? I mean, I I, I I'm thinking here in particular of the the Hazel Carby work where she talks about to be the race man, right? And to be the mm-hmm. person who kind of leads the movement. Um, requires you then to be kind of stripped of any kind of queerness, right? And she was talking specifically about James Baldwin in this case. And I was yeah. thinking about a recent conversation between two fairly well-known Black male scholars about Baldwin. And once again, there was this weird erasure of his queerness from that conversation. And so I take that as a starting point to just um, talk about the fact that I think in this contemporary movement, what... I think Black queer, trans, um, and feminist, you know, folks, and of course, keeping in mind those can all be embodied in, in with sure. one one individual. Um, um, I I feel that there's this point where people are saying, "Look, if we are going to be the people doing the labor and organizing, we're not going to kind of have our issues on the side any longer, and you don't get to kind of use us." as the face and labor of the movement while kind of downplaying um, the fact that Black liberation has to be absolutely connected to questions of gender and sexuality if it's going to actually be Black liberation. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and, and I don't want to pretend that that's not something that's been said before, but I think that the difference is the the kind of explicit and forefronting um, of that. And I think the very visibility of Black queer and trans folks claiming their Black liberation from a particular Black queer and trans um, and Black feminist stance. And I think mm-hmm. that, and I think being able to, I think, garner a certain kind of public platform to do that is, is what I feel like is new, right? Um, yeah. And I think that that's important. I think what I hope it means is that um, is that Black liberation actually becomes Black liberation, right? <laughs> um, and that it doesn't kind of continue to be, um, you know, a kind of uh, Black cishet male liberation, right? Or Black cis, you know, liberation. Um, so that's what I hope it means. You know, I, I think that um, we see that old 
habits die hard in some ways, but we also see that people are pushing back against that consistently and constantly and demanding that that this level of Black politics looks different. You know, it must look different. Well, and, and, and it changes the very face of what counts as Black, I think, too. Um, so the, the symbol of Blackness, if you put that you know, in many people's minds and the faces of uh, MLK or someone of that sort, that that's no longer the face of Blackness for many people. I agree. Yes, I think it, it, it changes this idea of, um, of even what leadership means, because obviously I think what's also happening in a lot of these institutional structures is just a critique of the you know, of the, the the sort of leadership model that kind of anoints, you know, a particular person as the leader, right? Um, mm-hmm. That then that then is the, you know, the you know the spokesperson, and um, that everyone's supposed to kind of galvanize around. I think that they're also um, young black queer and trans folks and feminists are also sort of pushing this more collaborative, less um, vertical you know, types of, of structures, right? Definitely less hierarchical. And I think that's the influence of, of Black feminism in particular, but to, to a greater extent, the way that Black feminism has influenced queer and trans politics as well. So I'm interested. This is a, a, something we didn't talk about in advance of our conversation to prepare, but it just was wondering what you think about... Uh, I know Audre Lorde influences your work, um, what do you think she would think of of this historical moment? What would her analysis be of where we're at and where we're heading? I would like to think that she would be heartened by the ways that a lot of her essays around what Black politics and Black liberation and queer liberation should look like are being kind of really taken seriously um, by, um, you know, the, this new generation of Black queer and trans activists. Um, I think that she would be heartened by it. And I would like to believe that she would push us to, you know, she would like to push us a little further, right? Um, I think she would like to say, you know, this is sort of the beginning and there's still more that, you know, there's more that we need to do. There's more that we need to do to respect difference. We have to kind of, there's more that we need to do to think about what, what unity actually means. Um, there's more that we need to do, I think, as far as certain kinds of criticisms of um, particular kind of fascistic tendencies that, you know, um, and, and corporate capitalist tendencies, right, that, um, that we need to fight against. So I think it would be a combination of, of heartened, right, and, mm-hmm. and caution that, that we still be continuously vigilant. Um, I I find a lot of her work was about the need to be kind of continuously um, vigilant and cautious about reproducing, you know, certain kinds of hierarchical or the master's structures, right, in our our own work. Right. I mean, not that there's a right to that answer, uh, but I I like what you had to say. And I I think that that caution is always so important. And I think that's why I so often return to that quotation I started with about hope is a discipline, because I think that discipline piece, that work piece, that diligence, that long game piece is so crucial to any of this kind of work. Um, And absolutely, that's what Lord and so many other, you know, black feminist, their work is about. Um, 
I wanted to maybe ask you a, a kind of final question related to you. Your book has just come out. Um, you're thinking about new things. You've actually had two books come out in the last uh, two years, so you've been quite busy. Um, what are you thinking about right now? What's the direction that your your work is taking? Yeah, I, I don't know. And I'm going to be really honest about that. Um, I am trying to kind of sit with this moment um, because I think that I had ideas about what the project was going to be. So I, I, I initially was really interested in looking at how Black queer folks in South Africa were constructing belonging. Um, mm-hmm. And I was thinking about belonging as being something very distinct from um, citizenship, right? Mm-hmm. Or distinct from, um, you know, certain other words that we use to kind of connote, um, you know, certain kinds of citizenship and how belonging was really more communal. Um, mm-hmm. It was, you know, and I was looking at at kind of gestures of and ways that Black queer folks um, were trying to construct belonging in their communities. So the fight wasn't over legal status, right? Um, the fight wasn't over, you know, these things that I think, you know, folks are fighting for in much of the African continent and in here in the United States, right? Pretty much all the legal things that can be done and, you know, have happened through activism in the, in the South African context. But the question remains about those disconnects um, in community, right? This sort of yeah. lack of belonging, right? Um, and so I became really interested in what that would look like. And um, there may still, I, I still would like to pursue that project at some point, but I've also felt a particular urgency around, I think both how the combination of COVID and um, a sort of renewal in in certain kinds of, of protests and social movements, um, and have created a kind of different kind of, I don't know, urgency or idea about what my work should be doing or look like. Yeah. And I've really increasingly just become interested in thinking about where Black queer people are in the middle of all of this. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's going to be a creative type of thing or a kind of historical type of remembrance or a kind of... uh, I think, um, you know, imagination into like how people are kind of, I don't know, functioning philosophically or through political theory. I, I haven't decided yet, but I I guess that's a thing that has just really come to me is that I'm I, I'm really interested in what, it, what does a Black queer radicalism look like? Because I mm-hmm. feel like... I feel like people are talking a lot about what Black radical politics look like, but it feels like that is is a set of readings and praxis that don't seem to always take into account queerness, yeah. right? Um, and then there's a Black queer reading that doesn't always seem to engage in 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 what in what we might call Black radical, or it, it isn't conceived of let me say that I actually think it is engaging um, um, yeah. black radical but it's not conceived of as being a part of the black radical tradition and I think I want to kind of think about how to pull those things together so those are those are things that I've been thinking about um, um, right now in this moment well I love that and I think you're the perfect person to do some of that thinking and really to push all of us to be able to um, understand 
the relationship between Black radicalness, Black queerness, um, and these other things we've been talking about, aesthetics and play and imagination. And so uh, I, for one, am excited for what you come up with next. And uh, I'm also going to miss you around here. And so I uh, really just want to wish you good luck at Santa Cruz. Um, I know they're going to be excited to have you and they're very lucky to have you. Um, And I also want to thank you for joining me uh, on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thank you so much for the the well wishes. Um, this, you know, the QT voices and the queer community that we've been able to build here in at UT will be definitely one of the things I will miss. Well, we're sorry we can't give you a proper send off, so I guess this will have to do till we see each other in person again. Uh, But our guest today uh, was Dr. Xavier Livermon, who is about to be an associate professor of feminist studies uh, at the University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, leaving the University of Texas. Uh, Again, thank you, Xavier. Uh, Thank you all for listening. This has been Audio QT. (laughs) 